0: With the D20 Radio,
1: your game is dot www.d20radio.com <laughs> Roll for initiative.
2: Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome to the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is issue number six. We are your hosts, DM Vince and DM Jason. Jason, how are you this
1: evening? I'm back in America, back after the holidays. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm feeling American again.
2: (laughs) As uh, some of your listeners may know, Jason had taken an extended vacation with his family over to Japan, and he had a wonderful time, as he's going to tell everybody
1: yeah it was the best i I feel like I just stepped into a a Norman Rockwell painting in the nineteen fifties or something I mean it's amazing. We were staying at uh at my at, well, at my fiance's place out near uh this place called Boen, which is a horse park in mm-hmm. the middle of the city right. and every day there's kids like skipping rope and flying kites and riding bicycles and you know what's really big in Japan for little kids is unicycles. Really? Like, yeah, it's like I, I thought I saw some kid being all crazy and different, but then she was like, no, unicycles, That's I forgot that's not a thing outside of Japan. And this little girl who was like 10 years old was just totally rocking her unicycle, and her little brother who was like five was like, leave me alone, I can do it. And he'd get on and he'd fallen off because he couldn't do it. It was great. It was really fun. It was, it's, it's a great place. <laughs>
2: Excellent. Uh, All right, folks. Uh, This is the new year, 2010, and we're starting off our new year with a fresh new show for everybody, which we've had some problems here in the past, but we'll get to that in just a second.
1: Yeah, I heard there's been some problems, but I haven't been here to hear about them, so uh, sorry, everybody. Um, It may never happen again. Maybe. Maybe.
2: Greetings old one, we seek your advice Excellent, shit by the fire We shall talk Welcome to Sage Advice Okay folks And we're in our uh, mail section Or our Sage Advice section And while we were over the holidays uh, We did experience some difficulties With some of the files uh, So we are uh, planning to fix all those things Jason's going to take a look at the uh, m- the Chaptering and fix that all up for everybody I know some people had <laughs> some issues about that
1: so, yeah, in in a nutshell, we have two different streams because we have our basic stream that's an MP3 stream, and we have our enhanced, deluxe, super, <laughs> mega, M4A, awesome stream. And the main uh, link, if you're subscribing, the main link that we put up is for the enhanced podcast, the one where you can get the chapters uh, and you get the different artwork for each chapter and you can skip back and forth and do all that kind of stuff. Uh the technical details really aren't that important, but it's an M4A file for what it's worth. That's a file that'll play on your iPod. It'll play on your iPhone. It'll play on your Zune. Um, there's probably other portable players, too, but, I mean, iPod and Zune, you've covered most of the stuff out there. Yeah. Apologies to people who are using uh,
2: MP3 players. and anyth-
1: anything else. There's plenty of others. Um, But for people who don't have a device that can handle M4A files, we have the basic MP3. And that's, I guess, where the confusion came in because while I was gone, uh, we put out both streams, but I don't know, something went wrong with one of them. People couldn't get it or... I I don't really know, but the point is we're going to, we're going to fix it. We're going to make sure it's working exactly the same as before. So I really appreciate anybody, you know, sticking it out and listening and, you know, going along with this while we have some of our, you know, technical difficulties of the youth of our podcast.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Some things happen in the beginning and then you just square them out. Stick with the MP3 feed for now. And, uh, that one no had no problem. Don't
1: stick with the MP3 feed. Stick with the enhanced feed. We'll make that <laughs> one work. The MP3 feed is for losers. Don't use it. Wow, so it's it's just it's just chicken feed. It's not even deluxe. It's not even first class. It's like economy coach seating. You, Go for the super enhanced one.
2: You know, just about a quarter of the audience just deleted our podcast because of that comment.
1: Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, while you were uh, not you- kidding, I'm not kidding. Totally for losers. <laughs> We won't get into that. And, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's, Which
2: one is it? Are you kidding or you're not kidding, Jason? Come
1: on now. No, totally for losers. No kidding, kidding,
2: just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Anyway, you Anyway, you can also, if you have problems, go to our site, rfipodcast.com, and we have the uh, player on there that plays the shows directly on the web browser, or you can download the shows by clicking on the MP3 link and just download it there and download the loser file, as Jason calls it.
1: No, and, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Losers. <laughs>
2: while you were gone we did get a lot of emails um, talking about how great the show is it was various emails but one I wanted to point out was from Vlad and he was telling he discovered our podcast on the way uh, and he started in the red and blue box D&D back in the 80s Mm-hmm. And, uh, you got to
1: help me out here because I haven't had a chance to read all of these, so tell me what he said.
2: He said, Jason, stop calling us losers. No, I'm just kidding. He uh, just started in the basic uh, D&D system, and he uh, had a couple questions for us. He wanted to hear more about what modules we're running and which modules you recommend and which ones are fun. I really don't use modules myself. I, I do everything homebrew. Uh, Jason, you said you were running a module. You didn't want to say the name because your players do listen.
1: Yeah, because we're right in the middle of it now, but I mean... It's it's fine. It's it's the U series. You know, uh, Sinister Secret Assault, Marsh, Danger at Dunwater, the final enemy. Uh you know, I, I don't really have a position as to whether it's, you know, better to play with a module to write something yourself. I mean it's all down to are you doing a really are you creating a rich world for your players to go through? Uh I think that a lot of DMs are so talented as storytellers and as writers and weavers of worlds, that it just, it's more fun for them to create their own adventures, and you know, there's always also the thing of when you're going through a pre-made module, you, you know, there's always this, the players could go get a copy of it. I mean, you could say you're only cheating yourself, but, you know, it's it's nice to be doing something that nobody has any idea what's happening of. Uh, on the other hand, the thing about playing with pre-made modules, first of all, for myself, is because it's a bit of a nostalgia kick because uh, I like going back and maybe exploring some places that I remember from when I was younger. Also, uh, it's good to. Well, there's ones I had that I never got a chance to run through. You know, so there's always. Uh, for example, the whole Ravenloft, the original Ravenloft series, I bought them, I had them all the time that uh, I was playing the first time around, and we never went through them. And so I really am eager to go through Ravenloft at some time. Uh, the whole White Sands are, uh, uh, heck, I can't remember the name now, but, you know, the Oasis of the White Plains, et cetera. Total nostalgia for those. So a lot of it is just there's these great worlds that were incredibly well written that I want to go back through, uh, and also, it's just a question of how much time do you have to really create a whole world and flesh it out to that level. And for me, if I'm playing one of these modules, I'm not going to run it exactly the way it was written. And and a a uh, series like the U series uh, really encourages you not to do it, because it, it, you're required to create your own town anyway. And there's a lot of things that have just been happening that in order to... Keep the players on their toes and to just react properly to what's happening with the party. I've changed things uh, about what's going on in there. So, you know, so I I, yeah, I'm playing through through pre-made modules, which uh, I think the quality of them is so high, uh, and the writing is so good, and they're fleshed out so well, and they give you so much room to move things around that I'm having a good time with it that way.
2: Excellent. Um, like I said, I don't really use them, and I don't really care for them, but I will once in a while take some ideas from some of them and drop into my campaigns. he was wondering about that, and that's what I sometimes would do. If, if I'm kind of lazy that night and I need to grab something real quick, I might grab a scenario out of there, as they call it in well, the later editions, but, you know, encounters. Have
1: you, have you you um, Have you played through any modules before? What is it that you don't like about... Are you talking about you don't like DMing them, or are you saying you don't like... Uh, playing in them as a player either
2: i don't like using them as a dungeon master i don't like being uh restricted, so to speak. I like to have everything on the fly
1: okay so how do you when you go about creating one of your uh are you are you creating an entire campaign that you're playing through and you're like this is gonna you know th- these are different places that things will happen or are you going on sort of a uh adventure by adventure uh so-
2: I do plot points, and I do general directions with notes, and then everything else. Uh, I have my monster list and what watches I'm planning to use that night. I do prep work a couple days before. I mm-hmm. don't really plan things out like big time because my players have a habit of, this. Is, if I plan this out, they run the opposite way.
1: Yeah. Just yeah. like... Uh,
2: <laughs> I don't know if I said this in an earlier cast, but what happened right before the holidays was I had this whole thing planned out where they were going to the lighthouse and they were supposed to save, uh, they were supposed to rid the evil from the lighthouse. Well, what happened, two players in the group decided that they started fighting over something and one of the players who was pissed off at the other player decided to run the opposite way. So now I had nothing. So I had to sit there (laughs) and create an adventure like out of my butt. (laughs) I mm-hmm. didn't know where I had to go with it and then finally get the group back together to go where I wanted them to go so right. I didn't railroad them I let them go wherever they wanted to because I hate railroading again too I let them go where they want to go and I convinced them along the way with NPCs and various monsters this is the way they should go
1: yeah I mean that's one of the things that players can spot right away is when you're railroading them into something and I think it takes the fun out of it for a player if they feel that way
2: well, that's where I, I mean, let them uh, run the way yeah, they wanted to run.
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole point of, well, not the whole point, but a huge point, maybe the whole point to me of playing uh, actual tabletop RPGs with other human beings as opposed to just sitting down with a computer is that human beings can react to changes in what you do. You're playing a video game and you know you run the wrong direction and suddenly you hit the invisible wall and your little character just can't run any further. <laughs> you know, Mario can't leave the castle or whatever. Uh-oh. But, you know, and and that's the same feeling you get if you're being railroaded through a scenario where every time you try to do something that's inventive or just goes off the plot, the DM comes up with some really convoluted reason why you can't do it until you realize that he's railroading you and taking you down this path where all you get to do is swing sword, hit monster, monster swings weapon, I am hit, next thing happens, treasure (laughs) here, yay! You know, it's no fun anymore.
2: Some people do like that though.
1: Well, no. No. <laughs> they shouldn't. That's not fun. I'm not even gonna be you know, diplomatic about that. That's not fun. Mm. That's that's just rolling the dice and looking at each other.
2: Ooh. <laughs> so. Anyway, uh if you have any questions or emails rfistaff at gmail dot and uh, thank you, Vlad, for emailing us, and thank you, everyone else has emailed us with some great comments and and complaints about the files. I have received all of them, and Jason will get to fixing all the things that I screwed up.
1: And I, I heard that there's been some emails that were more argumentative and you don't know, Jack, and I haven't had a chance to read them yet, but I want to encourage people to continue those because, actually, I like hearing people disagree with stuff. That's... Fun. So I, I will read through those and, and react properly for the next for the next episode. Issue. Next issue.
2: That's right. It's issue now, pal. yeah.
1: Yeah. Feature one.
2: Okay, folks, that'll bring us into uh feature or feature one as we like to call it. And what do we have this week, Jason?
1: So this week we're talking about divine intervention. Ooh. Uh, which could mean any number of things uh, so why don 't you start out with kind of how you decided that we 'd be talking about divine intervention because I think it 's kind of interesting that you 've got this backstory uh, to get us kicked off with
2: oh yeah the, the story uh the story basically starts like this that I was playing in a campaign that one of my friends was running uh, way back, probably i don 't know ten years ago or so, and uh, I was playing my uh, knight or a cavalier. Actually, he was just really a fighter who was you know, aspiring to be a knight. And we were running through this, uh, I think it was a, a tower, a large tower, or it might have been a small keep, I'm not sure. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were running around. We went up killing all these orcs. And, and then I remember in the rubble I found a ranger's dead body. And on mm. him was, it was uh, a, a silver ring. And, you know, as any suspicious D&D player does, he looks at it and, you know, examines it, and he finds a name on it. So I found a name on mm-hmm. it, and mm-hmm. that name was Caracas. Okay. And so being this... Suspicious- Caracas? Caracas? Yeah. like
1: Like, uh, uh, as in Argentina? Like that Caracas?
2: I, I don't know. Was Caracas like the okay. ham, okay? Because they make a ham called okay. Caracas, too, so that's maybe where he got it from. Okay. And so I took the ring and immediately put it on because... I, daring player that I was and he said nothing happened so Mm -hmm. I was running around the whole campaign going Caracas and holding the ring up or throwing my hand in the air going Caracas like this and that and then finally uh I was after in a desperate situation we were surrounded I took the ring and I had my player hold it in his hand and he believed in (laughs) in Caracas and like the whole room tumbled in and killed all the orcs that were surrounding us. And then soon later on, <laughs> the uh, voice of Caracas started coming in my head. So, which maybe I thought it was an intelligent item. Mm-hmm. But each adventure was moving along, I kept using it and calling Caracas. And kind of, <laughs> my player was kind of worshiping Caracas for saving them. Which mm-hmm. the DM decided, since it was such a cool concept and everything, he formed a minor deity or god out of it called Caracas. And we used it in. Many years and many adventures afterwards.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. So, so, did you ever find out what the ring was actually? I mean, what was the? Yeah,
2: Caracas was the name of the ranger that died who had the ring, and that was the ring, I guess, given to him by his wife, inscribed with his name.
1: I don't know. That's all it was.
2: That's all it was. He said there was nothing special about it, but you made it something special.
1: Oh, you know, I, I just realized, I, I went ahead and looked this up. I have to apologize to everybody from Argentina and Venezuela. Caracas is in Venezuela, not Argentina. So, oh, oops, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, no, it's just we've got a restaurant here called Caracas, and so they've got really good food, and I just got mixed up between Argentina and and and, and Venezuela. So So Caracas was created, your god was created, mm-hmm. and... Did did you have any idea that the DM was going to go that way? I mean, what? No. How'd that how'd that play out?
2: I didn't have any. I didn't know he was going to do that. He just the awesome DM that we had decided to. No, it wasn't the Joe DM. It was a different DM. Uh, he decided that he, that's what he wanted to do with it. He wanted to just. He thought it was funny, and he and the whole group enjoyed it, and he became a god. So
1: you know, it's it's pretty cool. It. it I'm going to go back to Terry Pratchett again since he's one of my favorite authors of all time, right but uh, this is a theme that's a little bit a uh, little bit of a recurring theme in Terry Pratchett's books is mm-hmm. that gods are sustained by belief, and so they can also be created by belief. He's got this book called Small Gods, right. where uh there's he describes all of these little almost impotentia deities floating around out there just waiting for somebody to come and believe in them. And so he gets some really good ones and I'm trying to look for the name right now, but there's one of his gods is a goddess who is uh her her entire uh role is helping people find lost things in their silverware drawer. <laughs> Cuz there's just so many people have prayed to find have a god that would help them find something that was lost in the silverware drawer that eventually she came into being. So it's that kind of a thing. I, I'm sure that's an older idea. I don't know where the idea first mm-hmm. came from, but I'm sure that's a theme that's been around in, in literature for right. as long as there's been literature.
2: Now, divine intervention, back onto the topic at hand, um, a reason why I decided to pick this for one of our features, Jay, uh, Jason, was because um, when the newer, later di- editions of D&D, I noticed that the divine intervention... Doesn't really exist as much as it did back in the original D and D games, mm-hmm. because the characters are so more, such more powerful than they were back in the good old days. Mm-hmm. Especially with fourth edition, you can, you know, you're healing yourself with healing surges, and you have powers running around. And third edition, you have feats and. Second edition, you have all these skills and powers. You know, divine mm-hmm. intervention, I remember Divine Intervention was at least asked once or twice every campaign
1: in the situation that you were stuck. You always,
2: oh, I need some Divine Intervention now, please, dice, or something like
1: that. <laughs> what, what do you define? How, how, how did you roll for this Divine Intervention?
2: Well, not not for the the ring one. I didn't roll for it. The DM must have rolled for it. No,
1: but I mean, I mean, as a DM, because that's actually kind of a new concept to me. I never really, uh, you know, as a DM, I would occasionally set up a situation where uh, I would plan for some divine intervention, but it'd be a little bit more like Homeric than it would be uh, game related. I wouldn't really be willing to just give it up to a player who got stuck and said, "I'm going to need to call on my God for direct intervention." Well, so I was. To, yeah.
2: to quote the great Joe DM, who mm-hmm. started all the divine intervention stuff, he used to roll a percentage dice, and if it was a certain percentage below, he would uh, allow a certain part of information or whatever we needed to be accomplished through role play.
1: Well, I guess the way that I that I would look at it is, and what I'm going to say now is going to be influenced a little bit by what i'm reading right uh but I, I right now i've decided to go back and read homer's odyssey because you know it's one of those things where you read it in school and you don't really appreciate it as much and then later in life you discover that it's an amazing fun story here mm-hmm. and so the whole reason that the gods take an interest in ulysses or in odysseus sorry uh when he's uh trying to find his way home, is they explicitly come out and say that you know he's been more uh, pious than anyone else. He's just done better sacrifices and he's brought more glory to them. And so they've noticed him above all other mortals. And as you read through the Odyssey, you start getting this theme of both mortals and gods being a little bit on uh, a spectrum or a gradient where the Mortals can be more or less godlike, to the point that they actually, you know, refer to uh, the godlike Odysseus or the, um, oh, what's his son's name? I've forgotten now, but you Mm -hmm. know his whoever Telemachos, Mm -hmm. the godlike Telemachos, Uh, and then with the gods themselves, you've got the ones that are, I guess I'd say further down, like Athena or Hermes, who are actually going to interact with humans and then you have these gods that are very old and very huge like Kronos who are just so removed that they're not going to to to, to deign to to intervene in those affairs so I think that kind of approach to the pantheon of gods and to the way that people work fits really neatly with an AD&D world mm. that if I was going to expect to provide any divine intervention to a player that player would have to had not just this game and not just uh recently but as a consistent uh theme in the way that they play their character would have to be very devoted to their deity actually be trying to bring them into the game in the sense that they'd be performing sacrifices or performing uh rituals or praises you know just as a regular thing so that the god was already paying attention to them and they'd have to be acting in a way that was very Appropriate to that. So I think it's the player that would bring it in even more than the DM, because if the player chooses to role play in such a way that they decide the religion of their character is really important to them, then as the DM, I'm going to notice that and I'm going to keep it in the back of my mind so that if something comes up, I think the deity would be a lot more likely to intervene. And the flip side of it is then how. Busy, I guess you could put it. Is their deity? You know, are they followers of uh, a deity who's so huge and removed from everyday life that they're less likely to pay attention, or is it maybe a more minor deity? So, in the case of your character, who actually was the one that brought Caracas into being, I'd say Caracas is going to be pretty uh, attentive mm. to his needs.
2: Well, yeah, definitely. It was all. It was a very Good campaign, and the I can't tell you how long the the god Caracas lived after that character and into how many campaigns he did, because we just kept using him because it was such a great concept. The DM liked it, I guess. I don't know.
1: It's I love that. That's awesome. I, I don't think I'd even roll for that as a DM. I'd just make a decision. It's the DM's opportunity to do a little role-playing of their own.
2: Exactly. So Divine Intervention, uh, basically when a deity or a god steps in by player, or I shouldn't say player, by character, request, or representation somehow and helps out the campaign by DM decision. We don't know how. Tell us how you do it in your campaigns or how you've discovered a, a deity in your game or something that has an interesting story at staff at gmail.com. Suddenly, your torch goes out. You fumble around the darkness to relight your torch. When you do, you look up and see the Creature Feature Theater. Well, that brings us now into the Creature Feature Theater. And what do we have this week? We have the flow lights, right, Jason?
1: So we continue our tradition of very round monsters.
2: <laughs> That's right. You've noticed that, didn't you? Yes. Well, this one could be found in uh, Dragon number 38 on uh, around page 58 or something.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think they might have misnumbered it, because when I was looking for it... No, it's on page 58. I guess I'm just an idiot. <laughs> Anyways, here it is. The Flowlight. Mm. This is not an infomercial product from Vince Offer. This is, in fact, a monster. Mm. Although, yeah, I like the idea of the Flowlight having an infomercial.
2: <laughs> a Flowlight infomercial? What would this infomercial be about?
1: I... Uh, <laughs> I, I was tempted to just right now go into a, a, a Vince Offer kind of pattern, but I don't know enough about it to say. Uh, but what I'm looking at here is a nice illustration of the <laughs> flow light, seemingly attacked by a Sumerian of some sort in this uh, dragon magazine. The So the flow light itself uh, is just going to look like a ball of bright light three to four feet in diameter. Um so the first thing you're going to see is something that could be anything. I mean, you could you could mistake this for a will o' the wisp. You could mistake this for swamp gas. Uh, maybe you're going to mistake this just for the moon in the distance, but it's actually much closer than you think. Uh, but at, at any at any rate, these are highly intelligent creatures. Mm. Uh, they have a single eye in the center of their body. A um, little bit of a we talked about the beholder before, so we're having a little deja vu here, but it's nothing like the beholder at all. Uh, the first thing about the, uh, flow light is why would you actually go looking for one? And the reason is that the eye of a dead flow light protects the owner from, uh, drain level draining abilities from vampires, night hags, whites, etc. So, um, at the very least, you might actually want to go trying to find the Eye of a Flowlight. Oh. Yeah, it wouldn't be a very ethical thing to do, however, <laughs> because these are highly these are highly intelligent creatures. They're not evil. They're neutral. They're, they're neutral. neutral. Yeah. They're neutral. Um, uh-huh. So, first of all, if if your paladin is thinking about trying to protect himself from level-draining abilities by going to get the Eye of a Flowlight, he's... In danger of damaging his uh alignment good, status, yeah,
2: his good reputation, yeah
1: everything about it
2: mm. so they they're kind of they kind of look like kind of like an octopus like a squid or something inside the little light from what the so the,
1: yeah shows? that's that's the actual thing um the the creature itself has been described you know when when uh adventurers talk about uh Seeing a dying flow light as their lights fade, they say they look like a star, but what they 're seeing instead of eight arms of a star is actually you know eight arms of this floating creature that is tentacled like an octopus
2: and they do two to five points of damage for each one of them
1: yeah so uh, yeah let's let 's run through what they actually you know do just in purely mechanical terms uh, instead of talking about all the fluff. That might upset someone. <laughs> In- Not fluff.
2: Sorry. Shh.
1: Don't say that.
2: <laughs> so they have one attack. They have an armor class uh, of five. Uh, right.
1: So let's talk about how they do that attack uh, uh, when they do.
2: It's kind of like, you know, whoosh, just like that, and they attack you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tentacle that's coming out. So the damage that they do, they're only going to be doing one attack at a time, and the physical damage isn't that bad. They're rolling a d4. So, doesn't sound too bad. You've got a tentacled creature floating in the air. It's hitting you for 1 to 4 points of da- or sorry, 2 to 5 points of damage. So, 1d4 plus 1. But if the flow light does 5 points of damage, in other words, 25% of the time, mm. the the attack drains one strength point Ooh. from the victim. And don't worry. This isn't permanent, but it's going to take a while to recover from. But here's where it gets a little bit more uh, <laughs> tricky. Mm-hmm. Every time the flow light drains a strength point from its victim, the flow light gains from one to eight hit points, so a D8. And the good thing if you are uh, going up against a flow light is that when you're reduced to three strength, so if they've if you've started with twelve strength and been hit uh, nine times, then at, when you get to three strength, you're you're totally defenseless. The flow light will simply fly away to find better game. What they're basically doing, and, and this is a question that I had for myself when I started reading about the flow light, is why would they bother attacking? Well, yeah. Yeah, they don't. Well, um, Okay. Actually, tell me what I'm missing here, because I thought they did.
2: Well, they they are neutral creatures, so they're not going to generally just start attacking someone. They're only going to attack if threatened by you, if, as a player, coming after them, because they know what you're coming after, so...
1: Well, I mean, why would a neutral creature be any more that way than an evil or a good creature? Well, in terms of not wanting to attack.
2: Neutral creatures, I think, don't have the uh, aggressiveness to want to just randomly attack people, like evil creatures would do is just out for just killing everything that's well, my opinion
1: when i when i lived in chicago when i was uh you know a punk in chicago there was three skinhead gangs right there was the sharps cash and shock sharps were skinheads against racial prejudice so there's your lawful good skinheads what? uh Shock was the skinheads of Chicago. They were the Nazis. They were the racist white power Nazi skinheads. And then Cash was just Chicago area skinheads. So they they didn't really go one way or the other. They were like your neutral ones. Uh, the difference was that Sharps were totally anti racist. They were spirit of sixty nine Trojan skins. You know they two tone. They would you know all that kind of thing. Uh, the Shock was just evil, bad Nazis. Cash was right in the middle. The one thing that all three had in common is they loved to fight and they would kick your ass. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I mean, same kind of thing that I think about uh, when I'm thinking alignments here. Just because a creature is good, neutral, or evil in the AD&D world doesn't mean to me at least, the way that I would DM it, that they're going to be any more pacific or any more violent. I think that with the flow light, if they have a motivation and you're standing in their way, I would expect them to be fighting you. Nah.
2: Like we have our own styles, and my styles, I wouldn't have a neutral creature be aggressive towards players. I guess if they're standing in the way, but then again, a neutral creature might have a chance of just going around them because they just don't really feel like fighting.
1: Well, the only thing only motivation I could really find for this here in terms of attacking is to go and to gain more hit points because they don't say anything about these being temporary hit points. True. And to be honest, I don't remember ever having a concept of temporary hit points in first edition anyway. But it could just be that this is a good way for them to get strength. It's they're feeding. Mm. Now, the neutral alignment, I know I'm not going to go back into our alignment discussion that we had in a previous issue, but to touch on it a little bit, the point of the neutral uh, character or creature is that they believe in the balance of all things and that good and evil are both necessary to exist. They may be very happy to attack good or evil or even neutral characters if if it suits their needs, but particularly good or evil ones. So in in this case, flow lights. I guess the reason they're attacking is just to feed, um, or you know, as a DM, you're going to come up with reasons for this. This is just a cre- we're just giving you a creature here. We're not necessarily saying what to do with it. But just to go back to the mechanics for a second, the if you get drained, uh, you know, nine strength points, mm. you're going to have to. Uh, according to the description here you'll need 1 day of complete rest to regain each strength point lost wow so it's it's not i mean it's not that bad because from a pure healing standpoint you're going to need i mean if you don't have healing scrolls and spells and potions which you ought to have um, uh, it's going to take you a day to get a hit point back anyway
2: someone without restoration
1: right um now i don't know what type of uh, magic item or spell would bring back your hit points in a case like this. Because this is the first time I've encountered a monster that uh, drains hit points only temporarily. I mean, sorry, drains uh, attribute points only temporarily. Have you encountered anything like that?
2: Um, Yeah, it doesn't... Um, oh, I'm trying to think of a creature offhand. Doesn't a white take away a stat ability?
1: I thought whites did just level drain.
2: Yeah, you can get that back at Restoration, though.
1: Okay, so... And so um, yeah, you
2: can get you can also get back stat points with Restoration. Uh, lesser Restoration, you can get it back with a Wish. Um,
1: yeah, but I mean, a Wish seems awfully... I I don't think I would waste a Wish on something that I could just rest for a week. Yeah, that's uh, why you would probably restore.
2: use less, Lesser Restoration or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, going back to our Wish discussion the other day, but but uh, yeah, I, I think that I would definitely hold on to my Wishes. In a case like this, if, if I, as a player, got... Uh, my strength drained by a flow light, I'd probably just go ahead and rest up if it was at all uh, feasible in the, in the scenario.
2: All right. Well, what we could do is we can track down Kevin Reedman and find out what his original intention for this creature was and what it would do on uh since it's a neutral alignment creature.
1: Yeah. I'd I'd really like to find out where the, uh, Inspiration and the source of the flow light and the name came from because all that's not here and there's got to be a great story behind it. So let's get Kevin.
2: Let's try to track him down and uh, have a little chat with him.
1: Kevin Reedman, if you're listening, please call us.
2: <laughs> or email us, staff at gmail.com. Tell us what you think about the flow light from Dragon 38 on page 58 and uh, have fun with it. Give us your stories. Creature Feature Theater. That's uh, it for this segment, folks. Welcome to Playing Tips. So we're going to step into uh, playing tips this week. And uh, I brought this one up. I wrote it down last time we recorded because, uh, Jason, you had a great story about bringing players into your campaign. I'm going to title this one, DM, Is It My Turn Yet? <laughs> how to bring a player into an already running campaign. So uh, what was that story about you had spoken about how you were bringing players and you had them in a jail cell or something?
1: Well, yeah, so uh, first of all, I think this is something that is going to come up a lot of times for a lot of people, and I'd definitely like to hear some stories from other people about what they have done. Uh, But you're going to have situations where a character has to be introduced into the campaign, either because it's an existing player who has... whose character has died or been otherwise rendered unplayable, and needs to bring their new PC into the game or because you've got a new player coming in. And I think that's kind of what we'll talk about more Mm. today is you actually have a new player coming in. There's two sides to this. There's the issue of bringing in a new player uh, just on a personal level. You know, you've got a group of people who have been playing for some time probably, have gotten certain... uh, uh, dynamics going and trying to make the per- the new player feel uh, as part of it as possible. And the other side is how you're going to bring uh, the character themselves into the game. So uh, I'll I'll we'll go into it in a minute. But I think you know the things we'll want to talk about are what are some of the things that you can do uh, in order to kind of facilitate the uh, interaction between the players. Some of the things you can do that, and then what are the things you can do for the character. So. Uh the story you were asking about was in uh the campaign that I'm running right now,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we had uh it started off with just two uh players and myself, so each player each person was playing two characters. Wow. And uh we began the whole thing in a jail cell. So as as our story opened, uh we had two PCs who found themselves waking up one morning in a jail cell after a, a raucous night in a local tavern. You had uh, two more PCs that were being introduced uh, at the same time, you know, in order to get them out. So it had a basic backstory about them. Uh, one was the brother of another. Uh, they were coming to help release them from the prison, making a deal with some of the local authorities in order to to, to get them out. Uh, And that deal, of course, led to the beginning of the first adventure, which was to go and investigate this haunted house. So off they go. The story's begun. It's doing well. And then I had a third uh, person come to join the campaign. And what I needed to do was to introduce him uh, into the game and his character into it. Right. Right. As it happened, it worked out pretty well for me because the the four PCs were already out at the haunted house and they were exploring uh, the area. They had encountered Ned's, Ned uh the thief who was uh, bound and gagged and uh, found in one of the rooms, and he was going around with them. Uh, now, spoiler alert. If anybody's listening who's, you know, planning to play in the U-series, uh, skip to the next chapter now. Uh, and Mike players can listen to this because we've already gone through this. Uh, so so Ned Shakeshaft was not a thief. In fact, he was an assassin, and his particular role, this NPC, his particular role was to uh, try to prevent the... PCs from discovering the true nature of the house. In other words, the smuggling operation that was going on that was being covered up by the illusionist and his... And so Ned was going around with the group, planning to try to divert them, and if not being able to divert them, at, le- you know, at, at the end, he would simply try to assassinate them. Uh, so the new character, the paladin, who was being introduced into the group... Uh, I brought him into the, into the town in a pretty straightforward way. He was, uh, you know, set forth by his master to go and spread the word of his god and all that sort of stuff, paladin stuff. Yeah. What he encountered in the town uh, was that back in the town, the person who had actually sent – the merchant who had sent the assassin realized that he had actually made a bit of a mistake – you know that essentially by sending somebody out to try and assassinate the characters he was creating more opportunity for the characters to discover the operation than not he hadn't really thought it through and he panicked a little bit and went you know I've really got to go out there myself and try to retrieve uh this assassin and the whole thing before I blow the whole thing sky high and as a merchant who wasn't particularly powerful as a as a as a adventurer or of anything, he realized he couldn't go by himself. So he enlisted the help of another woman in town. And when they came across this paladin, they realized, perfect, we can use this paladin to help us, uh, you know, bring this all back. So now I've got my player character who's the paladin, and I've got my two NPCs that I'm running, and they convinced the paladin that they had to go out there because. The girl created this whole story about her poor brother who was touched in the head, a little bit crazy, um, tended to take on different personalities from time to time, and he had wandered off, and they think he's at the haunted house, and she's really worried because some adventurers had gone out there, and what if they ran across him and they didn't understand that he was mentally imbalanced? So would she, ple- would he please uh, try and help... You know, go out there and let's bring them all back. And it, it would be a great story. We'd be able to tell the characters, "Don't worry, you don't need to be here anymore. Oh, it's it's fine." And they bring them all back into town. So the Paladin, you know, Dudley Do Right went traipsing off to go help rescue the poor maiden's brother. And, of course, when they got out there, they had to come up with a whole cover story because, you know, at this point, Ned Shakeshaft is in full-on I'm-a-thief mode, but I'm secretly an assassin. And so the idea was that they would say, Ned, you're just you're crazy. You don't know what's going on. They got out there. They found the characters. Uh, These characters at this point had no idea who was coming into the room because I hadn't even made it clear to them who was an NPC and who was a PC. And that was kind of part of the initial – Uh, way I was introducing it. So I I told my player who was playing the Paladin, I said, just don't say anything right now. I'm not going to make your character do anything wrong. I just don't want the other players to know which one is you, because it'll throw the whole thing off. And so the NPCs came in. uh, I had... The girl who had a scroll, and this is where I created a spell, actually, there was no spell that would work for this, but I invented a spell called Greater Forgetfulness, uh, which would have basically erase their memories for a certain period of time, and she convinced them that she was going to read the spell that would get uh, her poor mentally unbalanced brother to be clear for a little while. So he'd understand. So she said, everybody go over here and gather in a tight circle so that you don't get affected by the spell. Cause I want you to be safe. And they all obediently went and gathered in a tight circle in front of the stranger. Who's got the scroll and she read the scroll. And of course she pointed it at them instead of her brother. Uh, only a couple of them managed to make their saving throws. One of which was not the paladin. <laughs> uh but hilarity ensued the fighting began they realized what had actually happened to them and by the time this whole fight had gotten over and gone down they'd realized who was actually being played by this new guy which character it was he'd had a a bonding experience with them because you know a bonding experience is any time that you share some kind of adversity with other people uh so he was actually now uh, kind of getting along with the players right away because they'd already had some kind of experience they'd gone through together, and he was now a part of the party with a very uh, plausible reason for why he had joined.
2: Wow. That that was an interesting. And you all, you just on the whim did this, or was this planned, or...?
1: Well, I actually sat around for a couple of days before the game going, you know, the, 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 well, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? How am I going to bring this guy in? But luckily for me, I had kind of not done that good of a job of running the game to begin with because I really <laughs> didn't think that it made a lot of sense that this yeah. assassin was going to try and just backstab. Somebody's going to backstab four people. This is something that was written in the module, and it goes to what you were saying before about being – playing it exactly like the module goes and this just made a lot more sense I actually think that it worked out much better uh, than it would have otherwise but yeah I did have to sit around and puzzle it over for a couple of days trying to think of how I was going to work this in and it just you know popped into my head as these things do Hmm.
2: interesting well um, there are various ways to bring players into uh, into campaigns there's always the uh, you know just he's you find him like you said in the jail so you uh go to the local tavern and there he happens to be waiting for you and you just all agree to move along and you bring him into the story which is kind of boring but some people just want to get to the fun and the action of the game so uh you can also uh bring players in uh just say they were there the whole time I mean, that's kind of cheesy and annoying <laughs> but you know if you really want to get to the action that's the best way to get to the action so
1: do you read uh, the comic Order of the Stick?
2: No, I've, uh, you've had spoken about that once or twice before. You so. gotta,
1: you gotta start reading Order of the Stick. I'm, and I say this to everybody listening to the podcast: if you're not already reading Rich Burlew's comic, The Order of the Stick, uh, you should. It's it's at Giant in the Playground Games, so it's giantitp.com. dot com. And he always does some good jokes on that, and one of them is you know the whole they were there all the time kind of joke, yeah, so yeah. Uh, you know magic users with their familiars, and the familiar just seems to show up when they 're needed and he 's finally realized he 's finally admitted that the magic user her or not admitted i mean he 's been doing this on purpose, but you know the magic user he or she we don 't who's of indeterminate gender, has a familiar that keeps showing up only when it 's convenient, and so now. Finally, the bird's there all the time, and it 's become a running joke. you know this idea of the familiar that just showed up and it 's the same kind of thing with characters, yeah, I guess they were just there all the time uh, <laughs> it, it 's not the worst thing in the world you can do i mean i 've certainly had that happen in games, and nobody went away feeling like they got cheated or anything
2: no nah, you basically you, you do it, however, the group the consensus of the group, they just want to move on and play and have fun. Yeah, I mean, that's that's
1: totally acceptable. But there are some
2: stickler DMs that have to go, like, more reality and have to have it this way and have to, you know, that doesn't make sense. How can a player just pop out of nowhere, you know?
1: Well, you know, I think if the DM's got a good way to do it, then have fun with it, but don't let it stop you from uh, getting on with the game.
2: No, of course not. Uh, I just wanted to uh, point out a couple really funny movies that go over... This type of topic, uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard of them, Jason. But have you heard of the movie The Gamers?
1: Um, is that the film? Is it a British film?
2: No, actually, it is uh, an American film about uh, a comedy troupe that's in uh, Seattle, Washington, actually. And they uh, produced a film back in I don't know, I think it was two thousand two, three called The Gamers. Huh. And it's about a gaming group that's sitting around a table playing Dungeons and Dragons, or, or you know, a, a clone copy of it back then. Mm-hmm. And they sit at the table and they go over very. They're playing the game and they'll cut away to a scene of them actually playing. Okay. And then they'll like, the DM will go, the thief will be, I, I creep into the room, I walk into the room, and all of a sudden you hear the dice roll, and boom, a fireball comes out, and the thief dies. He goes, Did I say I creep? I walk into the room? <laughs> I meant I creep into the room. So it, it cuts back, you see the guy creeping into the room, and the dice rolls, boom, he dies again. He's like. Did I say I was creeping? I meant I was crawling on the floor searching for traps. <laughs> they cut back, and then they also go through all the various scenes, like a player not showing up. The whole, You know how sometimes uh, the player doesn't show up? What did you do with him? Well, yeah. what they did the whole time is you're running through the adventure, and the demons say, well, the four of you finally reach the mountaintop, and you hear the guy in the background go, the five of us. He goes, all right, the five of us. And you see boop, a character appear, <laughs> turn to the side, away from the camera, as if he's there, but he's not really there because the player is not there. Really funny movie. Uh, it's only like 45 minutes long. Is it I
1: mean is it well is it well produced? Am, am no. I going to cringe? Is it awesome?
2: It it's awesome in the simple fact because if you're a Dungeons and Dragons player, some of the way that players act is funny and you can relate <sighs> to it. But the good well, thing
1: much, yeah, go ahead
2: is they came out with another movie in 2008 uh-huh. called The Gamer's D- Darkness Rising it's called this one is more uh, of a budget because they actually got permission from Wizards of the Coast to use Dungeons and Dragons 3.5. Mm-hmm. And uh, other, like, they, I think they actually got permission from Paizo and things to use various products. And what this is about is three munchkin gamers in the back of a gaming store with a DM that's trying to write his own campaign and get it published. And they go through the campaign, and these munchkins keep dying because they don't know how to role play. So what they do is they want to bring in a fourth player who is a, a woman, and she teaches them how to uh, to role-play. And there's some various funny scenes in the movie of them, you know, attacking this and that, the bard dying 37 times and him screaming at the monsters, <laughs> hey, a-hole, don't you worry, there's 37 more of me to come, and things like that. <laughs> and you hear that it's very funny. I suggest anyone go look it up. It is on Netflix on demand right now, so you can watch it in streaming if you have Netflix. Great, great, great I think game. I will. Yeah, I think you'd like the you'd like the the darkness rising one, Jason, a lot. You can relate to some of the players. Who are like, the player come to the group. I'm playing a monk. He's like, you can't play a monk. He's like, I don't care. It's in the core rules. You cannot block me. And he'd be like, fine, you play a monk. And he's like, oh, and I'm also an elf. There's no elves in my world. And you see like the the NPC character pull the ears off the the monk character. <laughs> some various funniest scenes like that. And then like he'll you know, the monk character be he pull out a lightsaber. And start using it. He's like, you can't use a lightsaber. That's the wrong system, and various awesome. things like that. You really any D and D player would love that movie. Go check it out. It's by uh, Deadgentleman dot is the uh, website you can go find that.
1: Cool. Yeah, my my uh, my DM in the the uh, fourth edition game that I play in Gabe has a rule that is awesome for when somebody doesn't show up for the game for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Is that if somebody can't make the game that night, all the other players that are there get to decide the reason their character wasn't there.
2: That sounds fine. Fair enough.
1: It's nasty. <laughs> we have a bad imagine- imaginations, mm. so. Yeah, so it's that's I, that's a pretty fun re- fun reason to do it.
2: Okay, cool. Well, um, uh, tell us how you handle things in your campaign out there, because we'd like to hear it. And uh, like Jason said, we'd have some one like hear some great stories about things like this. So uh, rfi staff at gmail dot com, and uh, I think that'll wrap things up. As the party enters the last space inside the cave, a treasure can be seen to stretch as far as the eye can see. Beware as you have just entered the Dragon's Horde. Okay, so that'll bring us into uh, one of our uh, last features, almost last features, but this is the Dragon's Horde. uh, What are we going to talk about this week? The Vorpal Sword, right, Jason?
1: Yeah, we're going to go back to a uh, staple of Mm -hmm. not just... uh, AD&D, original D&D, every version of D&D since, and a lot of other games, both uh, uh, video games and real games. But it's the Vorpal Sword.
2: Mm. Now you can find this in the DMG on uh, page 166. Uh, just in case you at home want to follow along with what we're talking about. And uh, Jason, when we were off the air. You were briefly explaining your thoughts about the sword, so I'm going to let you uh, take the stab at this one first. <laughs>
1: Well, the the Vorpal Sword itself, um, in, in terms of its its origins and its uh, description in here, it's it's very very simple. I mean, the anybody who I mean, I'm not going to you know spend too much time going over the basics of it no. because I think we found out by now that our listeners certainly know the basics. But it's the sword that cuts off your head. Uh, so on a, it, it's just <clears throat> excuse me, it's basically a plus three sword. Uh, like a sort of sharpness, Mm -hmm. and on a roll of 17 to 20 for a normal-sized creature, it gets a little harder as it goes up, uh, it will decapitate the victim. So the way it's actually described is that on a uh, modified roll of 20 to 23 for a normal-sized creature, Opponent it'll decapitate the victim, uh, but the only pluses that are considered for that are the plus three of the sword itself, so it probably would have been more straightforward to simply say on a roll of seventeen to twenty so um right off the bat that's a pretty high percentage yeah yeah you know, what what four out of twenty is uh, oh God math twenty um, percent, so twenty percent of the time. Uh, you're going to decapitate your opponent. Instant death. Uh, It doesn't work for every opponent. Uh, You're not going to be able to decapitate an ochre jelly. Uh, You're not going to be able to decapitate uh, green slime or or mold spores. Uh, You could decapitate a golem or a golem, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: it's not going to kill it because that's not its essential life force. Um, But There's a lot of things for which that's going to mean instant death. So it's a very, very powerful magic item and something I would not give lightly.
2: No, it's a classic sword with a classic attitude, and we just wanted to touch upon it because I just thought it would be interesting because everyone's always, since the 80s, talked about Vorpal Swords, Vorpal Swords, and then all of a sudden with the newer editions and the changes that the Vorpal Sword kind of got buried in the... uh, the pile, shall we say. So I just wanted to bring it back well, into light.
1: Yeah, and, and the Vorpal Sword for me, I mean, I, I I don't actually know where I've gotten this mental image in, uh, of, of what it looks like. I always imagine it as having almost like a unicorn horn kind of uh, uh, appearance. I, I really don't know where that came from in my head. But it's it's something that's been always really... A favorite of mine. I think it's a favorite of a lot of people's, mm. uh, maybe for what it can do, but for me, it was because I actually had, I remembered the word uh, from when I was a little kid, you know, well before I ever heard of Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that. And it's the same place that you know, the Vorpal Sword was originally named from, which was the Lewis Carroll poem, uh, Jabberwocky. Mm-hmm. When I, was, uh, when I was a little kid, my grandfather used to uh, really in- instill a lot of uh, love of poetry in me. And so we would uh, play these games where we'd uh, memorize poems, like we'd take turns memorizing ones. And so when we got to Lewis Carroll, uh, he chose to memorize the White Knight song, which is a really good song, and it, or a really good poem, and it's the first place I ever heard the words handsome cab. Um, and I chose to memorize Jabberwocky, which for, you know, years I could, you know, recite from beginning to end. Uh, but I'll give you just the lines to where the Vorpal Sword gets in. It's not long. T'was brillig and the slithy toves, did gyre and jimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogroves, and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the Jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the Jubjub bird, and shun the frumious Bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand. Hmm. Long time the maxim foe he sought. So rested he by the tumtum tree and stood a while in thought. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it keeps going. But so the vorpal sword's not explained. It's just a word. Lewis Carroll. I looked this up. You know, before the podcast, Lewis Carroll himself said, "I'm not going. <laughs> I can't explain what that is. I can't tell you what a tum-tum tree is either. I mean, this is a. It's a nonsense word, but it sounds so good that um, I suppose when. The I don't know actually who decided to put uh, the Vorpal Sword into the game. I assume it's Gary Gygax because, again, doing a little bit of research before the show, uh, apparently it showed up first in a Greyhawk uh, book. But I assume that he took the word because it sounded good and it could be anything and decided that it was for decapitating.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. So uh, if you uh, know anything about the Vorpal Sword or any information about it, just give us a holler, RFI staff at gmail.com now uh Jason, before we move on, I just want to talk briefly. we do have a new segment this week, and uh you had arranged it with uh, a uh, person on one of the uh on the dragon's foot platform or uh Tothorg forums uh what was Blackstone is his name I believe
1: right? so yeah, this is really good I'm excited about this we've got our first new contributor uh regular contributor. well no this is not our first regular new contributor to the show but uh this is our first new columnist, I guess, if you could, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so Blackstone came to us with a great idea, which was to start doing some reviews of modules. And we're going to go ahead and kick it off this week. It's called Blackstone's Vault. Uh, I'd like to hear everybody's uh, impressions, of course, just like I want to hear impressions of what we're doing, what you'd like to hear more of, etc. Uh, but this is... Really good. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to it right now. So let's go ahead and see what he has to review for us in the first edition of Blackstone's Vault. Sounds good.
2: Blackstone's
1: Vault.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blackstone's Vault. I am your host, Nick, a.k.a. Blackstone, and the first module I'll be covering in this segment is... TSR module N1 Against the Cult of the Reptile God by Douglas Niles. Now, the basic plot for this module is this. The village of Orlane is dying. Villagers are disappearing. Crops are failing. There are strange things being seen in the shadows and in the night. And it's up to a hardy band of adventurers Find out what's going on and bring an end to these dastardly deeds. Now, what's really going on is this: there is an evil reptile cult that's being led by, get this, a spirit naga, and she's charming people, bringing them back into town, and they're getting more and more worshippers. In fact, about half the town has been taken over by the cult. Uh, some of the center's of activity are in the town are uh, a temple for a. Uh, agricultural god by the name of Marika, and one of the inns called the Golden Grain Inn. So that's the basic plot. Now, some of your major NPCs, and by the way, the NPCs are very well detailed in this module, and it details who's a cult member and who is not a cult member, and what their motivations are. You have a constable and his two deputies who are a cult member. You got the mayor and his bodyguard, but they're not cult members. You got a uh, strange little old lady by the name of Vilma, who could be a little bit of a help to the adventuring party if the adventurers play their cards right. You also have a couple of converted, if I would call it, or they were charmed. Uh, uh, two of the uh, clerics of the Temple of Mareka by the name of Abramo and Misha Devi. You also have a strange uh, little fellow by the name of Ramney. He's actually a rather high-level uh, magic user, uh, seventh level to be exact, compared to the uh, player characters, and uh, he could be of a bit of a problem. And I'll get into that later. And also, we have the one who's pulling the strings and in, uh, in the background is the spirit naga, and her name is Explicata Defilis. Now some of the major encounters in this module. You have, like I said, the Golden Grain Inn, which is basically the meeting place and hideout for the cult members, and everybody in this place is a cult member, right down to the cook. So, And by chance, if the party does stay at the Golden Grain Inn overnight, they are going to get ambushed at night right in their beds by trogs, by assassins and the cook's one of the assassins and you got a couple evil clerics that I mentioned before and some more human cultists so if they explore a little bit more they will find some troglodyte tunnels below the Golden Green End so the plot thickens they'll probably investigate the Temple of Marika they head to the Temple of Mureka, you're going to face some uh, evil monks, and I'm talking to character class, so a little bit of kung fu action going on there. You have uh, a very cool, interesting trap called the Hall of Statues, and this is a curse trap, and uh, let me tell you, it's pretty heavy duty. So, that one, uh, as a DM, I think you'll enjoy that one, flicking some pain on your players. Um, You also have some goblin cultists that are in the Temple of Mirko as well that are hiding out. You also have a chance of uh, saving a damsel in distress. The uh, the village uh, storekeeper's daughter has been captured and she's in there. There's also some more troglodytes and a small ogre that they've uh, charmed just to throw in there for a good measure. Now, However, the character party finds out about the uh, where their main base is, operations is in the swamps there, four days travel um, which is very well detailed as well and there's two levels uh, to this particular dungeon when you get to it there's a uh, the first level you got some killer frogs you're going to be dealing with uh, some more human cultists, crocodiles some troggs so we're dealing with the slimy scaly stuff and then you have harpy which, in my opinion, doesn't really fit. But I'll get into that later, how you can maybe fix that if you want. On the second level, you got a Coffer Corpse. Uh, You have another evil cleric with his white party guard. So guess what, folks? (laughs) Level Drain. Oh, yeah. The hits keep on coming. You also have... uh, the troglodyte layer, you got the layer of the troglodytes, of a small clan of troglodytes. Uh, also, we have Explicata the, the Phyllis herself. Boy, that's tough to say, huh? And she has a little bit of a, a, a pet, a bone snapper. So, you got that coffer corpse and a bone snapper. Going to need the Fiend Folio as well as, uh, as a reference. Now, some opinions and suggestions on this module. Some of the good stuff. Uh, like I said, very detailed. Enjoy that. Lots of NPCs you got some pre-made player characters. Um, You also have rules to handling if what happens to the PCs are captured by the cult and are possibly charmed by the Spirit Naga herself. So that's going to propose a real cool role-playing opportunity for your players. Also, there's the chance that uh, some major NPCs in the town of Orlane are going to be kidnapped each night. There's about a 10% chance, and you want to fudge with that a little bit, you can, that a key NPC is going to be uh, captured over each night. So there is a bit of a time constraint. Also, uh, things aren't exactly what they've seen. I mean, look, you have a nice agricultural uh, god temple of Marika, and actually, it's one of the bases. So so much for a nice, happy-go-lucky agricultural uh, god that's been kind of kicked out. You also have the Inn of the Slumbering Serpent, which is another uh, inn in town, and you have the Golden Grain Inn. Well, if I heard those names, hmm, which one would the player characters most likely stay at? Hmm, the Golden Grain Inn sounds nice. Eh, wrong answer. That's the place you don't want to stay. Ha ha ha. So you got a lot of good stuff in there, including counter tables for the overland, which is about four days game time travel. You're going to go through some forests and then to the swamp. Also, you have a small section on further adventures after you get rid of the cult in the area. So, a lot of good stuff. And finally, my number one thing about this, everybody else uses either to Village of Homelet or Keep on the Borderlands as a starter module for for a start of a campaign. This is a nice alternative, I think. It's a nice start for something else. I mean, everybody else uses those. I mean, they're great. Don't get me wrong. I own them. I like them. But you know what? This is different. I think this is a little bit more fun uh, or to use as a different starter. Now, some of the not-so-good stuff, in my opinion, it's a bit overpowered for first- through third-level characters because you have a Spirit Naga who's got a lot of nasty stuff. I mean... You know the the abilities of a spirit noggin. you got the abilities of a white. So, first or third levels is going to have their hands full big time. They better be very well equipped. So, that's more, in my opinion, for third or fifth levels. But, you know, if you want to go first or third, that's entirely up to you. You also have the problem with Ramney. Uh, Ramney... Uh, like I said, 7th level magic user is kind of a hermit. I would just use him as like a sage. He's for sage advice. Maybe help out the magic users to research spells. Create some scrolls for spells that they might need. But I would not bring him along into the dungeon as detailed in the module. I didn't plan it that way because it just seems like he's like a pet for the uh, for the, a pet NPC for, you know, the DM. That just leaves a poor taste. Your players' mouths. I just didn't play it that way. You also have the harpies. They just don't fit for me. You know, get got scaly, slimy stuff in this place, and, uh, you know, harpies just doesn't work. I replaced it with a Boalisk. I thought that was good. It worked well. Um, you might want to choose something else, and the Boalisk is in the Monster Manual, too. You can check that out. Also, the probably the number one thing was one of the evil clerics of Brahma, who was charmed and eventually converted over to worship of Look at the files. He's a 7th level cleric. And according to the rules, if I remember correctly, if you fall away from your faith, you can't get any spells above 2nd level. So how does he still have all his spells? Well, I played it to where there is a higher power behind the Spirit Naga. And I use Demogorgon as the power behind the Spirit Naga. So I used a demon. You could use a devil you could use some other evil demigod but something else that could bestow uh, spells to clerics. And also there's a minor thing. There's one other little minor thing. There's a spot on one of the maps. It's a maze near a troglodyte's lair and they kind of forgot to put the exit to the maze and they never fixed that. Oops. So there you go. Oh, well, where you can find this module? You can find it on eBay. I did a little research. You can find it on the low end for $4.99 and on the high end for a buy now price of $29.99. So you can find it there on eBay. You can also obviously check your local conventions or some old bookstores and see if they have it there. So, but it's out there if you check on eBay. So that's it on Against the Cult of the Reptile God in a nutshell, if you will. That's the end of my segment. My next segment, the next module I'm going to review, well, that's going to be a secret. But I'm going to give you a hint. It's one of the modules that was produced in the United Kingdom for TSR Hobbies, and that's all I'm going to say about it. So that'll whet your appetite and see if you can figure it out. So you could find me, Blackstone Nick, my real name, Nick, or Blackstone, on dragonsfoot.org I roam the boards there from time to time Under the name of Blackstone Or you can check out Kenzico.com Where I'm one of the moderators For the uh, Hackmaster forums there So again Thanks for listening I'll have another great module to review for you In a couple of weeks So enjoy Have a happy holidays And happy hunting
2: That's going to bring us to our final segment this week, and uh, this is the library segment. Uh, so what do we have to talk about this week, Jason? You said you had something well, to yeah, touch upon. Well, yeah, we're going
1: to actually kind of kick it off to next week a little bit. But for the library, um, what I will be talking about next week is uh, I'm going to be going into Jack Vance. And the reason I'm not going to go into too much this week is because I think of all the different things that I have to talk about in terms of you know what I'm reading – uh, and, and you know, I, I guess I could touch a little bit on homer 's the odyssey since that 's what i 'm on right now, but uh, I think that that would also be a longer discussion, although I would point out that if anybody has not read uh, The Odyssey since high school or college or maybe grade school if you went to a particularly good school system, <laughs> uh, then really go back i 'm reading right now the the Albert Cook translation which um, I think is one of the best ones out there. Um, Go back and give it a read again because you're going to discover, first of all, that it is uh, a great story. I mean, just first and foremost, it is a gripping tale. Um, The format, you know, the Greek hexameter is not at all um, daunting or impenetrable. In fact, it's incredibly... Light and easy to read. It's really a light, easy read, Um, and you're going to discover so much about the origins of some of the fantasy um, uh, literature that you probably love right now, as well as the stories um, you know that 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 you love. And as I was saying before, some of the elements of the actual game that we play—I mean, I think—are well pointed out when you look at the way the gods and, and man interact. Uh, for next week, we're going to talk about Jack Vance, though. And as I said, I don't want to go too much into it this week because, honestly, I'm just not that prepared for it. I've, been, I've just finished reading the, uh, the books that comprise the Dying Earth series. Uh, I'm in awe. I wish I had read this when I was younger. Mm. I understand now why Gary Gygax calls him my beloved Jack Vance because mm. I don't think that I've read another author – in any genre like this, I would—I mean, I would put Jack Vance, and I'm not saying that to, to put this in comparative terms. I'm not saying that he's like these other authors, but um, I would put him in the same world as Lewis Carroll or James Joyce. Wow! Uh, in that he—it's—it's it's his love of language that makes it as amazing as anything, um, and just the as a little bit of a teaser for when I am prepared to give this the what it's due because these these are momentous gargantuan uh, accomplishments the books of Jack Vance the Dying Earth series is set uh, in a, an impossibly distant future uh, when the sun is going out and the concept of what, is it technology or is it magic is a completely moot point it's simply amazing things that can happen uh, these are the books where the Dungeons & Dragons magic system from whence it was derived. And what's amazing about the writing style is that to... I'm assuming, I'm t- completely assuming here because I haven't really read up anything, but uh, my assumption is that in order to create this fantastically alien world of an incredibly you know, different Earth where uh, fantasy and magic are just days you know, daily life things... The writing style, it reads as if it's been translated into English from a culture that you can't understand. So you get these um, amazing turns of phrase, an incredibly formal language, almost biblical type of language. But at the same time, uh, it's it's a bit like if you're watching a uh, – uh, let's say you're watching a, film, a foreign film from a culture that is just completely alien to you and maybe the person doing the subtitles was a little bit too literal mm. in what they did because there just wasn't any word in English to use and it kind of comes across like that. So there's a line that I remember uh, that where two magicians are speaking and the first one says something along the lines of, you know, I am, will not stand for this for I am Rialto. And the next one says, and I, with equal vehemence, am ill <laughs> It's just like, I, with equal vehemence, am ill defense. I mean, it's, it reads in a way like, clearly there was some kind of phrase actually being said that could only be translated that way. And so that's what he did. Um, anyways, I'm not going to go too much more into it. That's okay. my little teaser into Jack Vance. Uh I am awed and amazed and can't wait to talk more about it next week. And actually, I'd like to hear from anybody beforehand who is a Jack Vance fan, um, especially maybe if you want to even come on and have a little discussion about it, because I think this is probably the uh, the pinnacle of, of fantasy literature when it comes to players of original AD&D. Well,
2: that's, that's awesome. Uh, we definitely can't wait to hear more about it. Maybe we can try to see if we can... Is Jack Vance still living?
1: Jack Vance is still alive. He's in his nineties. Um, I'm maybe, assuming he's just going strong. Um, maybe we can try talking it would be to him. Amazing to time. speak to him. Yeah,
2: yeah. we we'll have to give him I, I don't know
1: how likely that is. I mean, somebody of that stature. But you know, can, can't can't wait to try, right?
2: Definitely. Uh, and next week we will talk more about that. So, speaking of which, uh, I guess that's the sound of the gong and the gunshot. So, what does that mean? Yeah. It's time to pack it up and roll on until next week. Uh, that's going to end issue six for this week. Uh, we had a good time tonight. What don't you think?
1: Yeah, can we have some Roy Rogers music to to play us out? Boom, booty the boom, but oh, never mind. Anyway, that's going to wrap <laughs>
2: up issue six for this week. Everyone have a great night. Uh, this is DM Vince signing off, saying, "Keep it original, keep it old school," and
1: good night, everybody. This is DM Jason. Goodbye.
2: <laughs> Take care, folks.
0: Roll for initiative.